Hey, this is Alex Byrod of Silent Force, Voodoo Circle, Primal Fear, Sinner, and Rock Meat Classic, and you guys are listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, welcome to another week of Focus on Metal, and I've got Richie back from the homeland, back in the studio. How are we doing, man? Doing good. Doing um, good? Yeah, delivers, recovering from all the Guinness, <laughs> but, uh, all the meeting and greeting that all I did the good when I was Guinness. home. Oh, yeah. The properly too. poured Guinness. Oh, yeah, it was good. It was a good time. Yeah, awesome. Nice, nice awesome. to get home. Good. Short, but yeah. nice. Yeah. So, yeah, we're back. I'm back. <laughs> awesome. And of course... This week, I uh, decided to roll out another one of the uh, Little Mountain episodes because we're actually going to try to finish off Little Mountain in 2016. Well, if we don't finish it this year, God knows when we'll finish it. Uh, well, we've only got two episodes, so... Well, uh, it's, my, it's probably a little bit too long, but... No, no. I mean, it was it was good. I mean, the whole thing, right? We, if you look at it, the amount of episodes we did for it, it really isn't much more than what we did for Strange Highways. It's just that we had so many other things to do this year that it just took forever to roll it all out. Yeah. You know? You you get hit up and we have interviews and we probably don't have as much discussion as I'd like on episodes. And sometimes I can't get down and that's that's the way it works. But um, yeah, the interview we're doing tonight now, we we did it. It's with Blake Sakamoto. September 30th. Yeah, and at the time, time Blake was in Dan Reed Network. Uh Uh-huh. They'd reformed. And they were just about to go into the studio to record a new album. Yeah. And, of course, he left the band. Yeah. And the new album came out this year on Frontiers, uh, Fight Another Day. And it's very, very good. Yeah. Um, if if you're not familiar with Dan Reed Network, they Which were, they weren't like, they, like the States, like... Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Um, I discovered them on the Slam album, which is their second record. And I talked a bit with Blake about that. And Noel Rogers produced mm-hmm. uh, that album. And that was the one uh, that kind of, where they kind of blew up in, especially in the UK, the record company, they were on Mercury, I believe. And they released four or five singles from that. Yeah. So they did heavily promote it. Uh, they did a tour supporting Bon Jovi. Uh, I think Bon Jovi were on their, promoting New Jersey. Right. So yeah. that's a big opening slot sure. for the band. And um, was uh, Cinderella here for that? I think it was Cinderella here for that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're talking 89, yeah. 89, 90, around that time. Um, I don't know how much airplay they got on radio and MTV. They got a little bit. I don't think the, 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 the record blew up as much as they'd hoped. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing them on MTV. And even during the interview, Blake talks about being played on Headbangers Ball occasionally. And we used to watch Headbangers Ball like every week. You know, just we would just go back, watch that, go back to what we we're doing again. And I don't ever remember seeing DNR ever. Yeah, well, I wouldn't recall. I wouldn't call them. They're definitely not a heavy metal band. They're, they're not, but that, but that whole thing. Then I would have been like, "Wow, why are these guys on here?" Because they, yeah, you listen to some of the stuff that they do, and it's definitely not that. Hmm. I think, I think they were pigeonholed a little bit because they were described as a cross between Prince and Bon Jovi. Yeah, which meant that for a lot of people, 
that was their sound. It was like a, a heavier version of Prince, uh-huh. a little bit heavier, and they were they were they were pretty funky at times. And I kind of lump them in with the a little bit with Living Color, Living Color and all yeah. those all those type of yeah. bands. And um, they had they were on a major label. They had Bruce Fairburn produce two of their albums. Um, they had big time management. Yeah, yeah. Was and, it? Uh... Q Prime. Q Prime, thank you. But before that, they had somebody else who was big. Um, oh. Blake mentions it too. Oh, I can't remember now. It was so, lo- so long. But they had somebody else in Shulman? there before was that. Was it Derek Shulman? No. Well, Derek Shulman was their A&R guy. Yeah, they had names. But they had somebody else that was like, it was management before even Q Prime that was like, wow, these guys are like well represented. Yeah, I, I can't remember. But um, It's in the interview, so listen, it'll come yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> and like when we had Mike Frazier on the first time when we did Strange Highways, and I asked him what album he did at Little Mountain that he thought it exploded and didn't. Yeah. He said it was Dan Reed Network. Yeah. And you got all excited. I, I was did. Like, I did. Huh? And you were all happy. Yeah. yeah. You were all um, I, was a, I was a massive fan of the band. I still am. Yeah. I um, never got to see him live, unfortunately. And they played here about a month ago. They did some dates in the US. And the, I think they only did one East Coast date. They did New York. Like New York. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah. of course, I'm not, you know. Right. I think it was, it was three days before I went down there to see the Megadeth show. Ah. And I was like, fuck. I was like, <laughs> I, yeah. But that's the way, that's the way things work out. And yeah. uh, um, they're still going. They're, the new album's really good. I really like it. It's probably one of my favorite albums of the year. Uh, it's a pity Blake's not with them anymore because they would have had the five original guys mm-hmm. and there's not that many bands around now yeah. that, you know, can say that they, ha- they have the original lineup out yeah. there. Yeah, and he was pretty, you know, in the interview you hear him and he's very excited about the fact that all the guys got back together again and all that. So, uh and and even um, he had one of the classic rocks you let me borrow too. There's a whole big write up about about Dan Reed and stuff, and, and it was like, wow, like how did these look? Listening to or reading that article, like how he was able to travel back to doing this again too. Yeah, well, Dan lost the plot. Yeah, he got yeah. into drugs and he had to rediscover himself, and he got into acting a little bit as well in the nineties. And he he released uh, a couple of solo albums, sort of like yeah. acoustic solo records, yeah. and course frontiers probably came in and said right you get back if you get back yeah. together we'll pony up and you yeah. can bring well it's interesting because in the interview you know blake talks about going back having a meeting in in uh in dan's office and all i can think of is back to that classic rock thing like yeah i read about that office <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah what's on the floor there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but um of course they did two records with uh with with uh mike fraser yeah. And Bruce Fairburn, it was the debut, which I had to go back and and discover after getting Slam. And mm. then they brought out The Heat in 90, 91, I think it was. It's funny, but the last two albums I ever bought on vinyl were Van Halen's For Unlawful Karen Knowledge <laughs> and Dan Reed Network's The Heat. Really? And after that, then it was all CDs. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, I didn't even know the Dan Reed Network album was out. It was one of these bands, I think, after Slam, that they just didn't get any coverage. And I just remember going into the record shop going, holy shit, new Dan Reed album. Mm. Like, so obviously the, the, the label at that stage had gone, yeah, yeah. whatever. Didn't he even talk about the fact that he, you know, he went back there and like everybody was like gone? Yeah. 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 Um, but one of these bands, big cult following, even when they go back now and play dates, they normally yeah. do a run of shows in England. They're still popular in England enough to go over and play like eight or ten gigs in various cities over there. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look up and you go on YouTube and you look up Dan Reed Network and anything recent, it's all like UK gigs. 
All the videos. Yeah. 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 But the guy, to me, he's, he's Dan writes most of the music. Brilliant yeah. songwriter. Yeah. I, when I put on Slam the first time, and I think I mentioned this to Blake, um, I was like, I just didn't get it. I, I, it wasn't yeah, you he- did. You mentioned it, it that. It wasn't heavy yeah. enough. And it was like, and it just grew on me. The songwriting was just so good on it. And yeah. even now I put it on and I still think it's an amazing album. Like, And even the first, the three albums they have are, are, are to me, are brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm the heavy rock guy. Like this would be pretty light for yeah. me, but yeah. I just think that they're an amazing band. Uh huh. They had such a multitude of styles on it. Like they're all. But the other one that was on here, and you mentioned it in the interview too, that I can see like a thread here of, of this with kind of what you like in music is is kind of that thread back to King's X too. And you even talked to him a little bit about King's X. Yeah, yeah. You know, a little bit. But King's X is. Uh, Again, that's another multicultural band. A lot of different influences. Yep, yeah. Um, of course, Kings X are heavier. They got like the Sabbath, the Crunch, and all that. Yeah. Um, like Dan Reed Network had the harmonies as well. Um, you know, great musicians. It just never happened for them, and I, I could never put my finger on the pulse of why they had all. They had all the cards were stacked yeah. in their favor. And yeah. It just never, never worked for them. I think after the Slam album, I think Dan. Uh, he, that's when he kind of started to come off the rails a bit. He cut his hair, yeah. which I talked to Blake cut about. It. He shaved it. <laughs> that, that, honest to God, that was a big deal yeah. when that happened. Like, I think the band thought of, were kind of shocked, but the management and all that were like, what are you doing? Yeah. Because like he was like a, 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 he was kind of a sex symbol. He had yeah. the long hair and he had the looks and all that. And of course, MTV was big at the time. And right. It was like it was a, a lot of it was like not not how good the song was. It was how you looked. Right. And all exactly. of a sudden, he yeah. everything was gone. He just said, I, "I can't deal with this." And he said, "Right, I'm sick of hiding behind the hair." And he just shaved the whole thing off. Yeah. And uh, that was honestly, God, remember, you remember when John Bon Jovi cut his hair? Oh yeah, that this at the time was as big a deal as John Bon Jovi cutting his hair. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Stu- you look back on it now, it's stupid. Yeah, that's oh, the way back it, that's, then though. Back then, it, back then it was like yeah. your image was not everything, but it was <laughs> a lot. Yeah, counted yeah. for a lot. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously we got him on because. You know, they recorded the that, the debut and the third one, right? Up at up at yeah, Little Mountain. Both of them, yeah. And uh and I basically Richie took this one because I uh, wanted this. I I, I you I, know this I, one backwards and forwards yeah, and it's I like to, why this, would I even bother? This is one where I went I went after a guy from 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 Dan Reed Network because I'd never had any of the band on before. Yeah. And I knew he'd done every other person we've had on on has only done one album there. Yeah. But Dan Reed Network did two. They did one in eighty eight when the studio had just about blown up and then mm-hmm. they did another one three or four years later. And yeah. I wanted to compare the two to see right. whether the, not only were the band the same, but were the guys that they work with the right. same at all. Yeah. And we got all the stories about the two albums they did at Little Mountain and we talked about the the Slam album mm-hmm. with Niall Rogers. So yeah. we, it was kind of a career thing with him. A little bit, yeah, yeah. a little bit. But it, yeah, but you're right. I mean, you, nice compare, contrast. On you know where the studio was at, um, and even just kind of a, uh, the overall like how Bruce would approach, you know, the band the second time after somebody in the middle, and and so he did a nice job of exploring all that as well. So he got a little bit more uh, meat about Bruce Fairburn too, which is great. Yeah, and one of the things as well that I noticed about the uh, the new CD in the thanks list, they thanked everybody from back then. Hmm. Even the guys, all the guys that worked at Little Mountain. Wow. So, so instead of just thanking everyone who worked with them now, yeah, they remembered 
all of that yeah. from back then and they put them all in the thanks list. Right. And I, I actually contacted Mike Frazier and told him, do you know you're on the uh, <laughs> on the thanks list? And he said he's still in contact with Dan every now and again. Like, oh. they're, they're still good friends after, cool. even after all these years. So that's good to know. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you say we... Uh we go ahead and uh, roll the interview with Blake Sakamoto. Sure. All right, guys. I think, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, roll. Okay, listeners, so this this week on the Little Mountain Sound Project, we have the one and only Blake Sakamoto from a band that I used to love in, in the <laughs> 80s and 90s, uh, the Dan Reed Network. So how are we doing today, Blake? We are great. So You can still, you can still love us. Oh, I, 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 I've never stopped loving the band. <laughs> Excellent. 
Yeah. So, so can I just go back a little bit before the debut? Uh, how did you actually end up in the band? Well, I was actually living in L.A. I moved down to L.A. in 86, and I was working with a guy named Julian Raymond, who's a uh, record exec now out of Capitol Records, but he had a band called Dear Mr. President. So that was like a formative stage of the band. The band eventually signed with Atlantic, with Mick Jones, a foreigner, producing, and they released on Atlantic. So, uh, But I got out of there before that and joined the network. Yeah. <laughs> so it was sort of a fun little... You know, kind of which direction do I go? I don't know. I go back home. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, obviously, Derek Shulman was the guy that, that signed you. Were you aware that he was interested in you at all? I heard there was a guy, somebody from maybe Atlantic, and then somebody from Mercury Polygram. Yeah. And so, when I kind of, you know, thought about thought about it, I being in LA, I was just aware of all the industry goings on. So I figured it was probably a guy like a Derek Shulman. So I was pretty sure it was him. Then I just, Dan confirmed and I said, Oh my gosh, yes, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you do a showcase gig for him or did he just turn up at one of your live shows and, and loved what you did? The band prior to the, uh, my be, uh, being in the band in 86, the band released itself titled EP called Breathless and mm -hmm. it did large numbers in the Northwest for a you know locally produced thing and it got a number one single on the um, local top 40 station which was unheard of in, in that time so that definitely caught Derek Shulman's attention and some other folks too um, but that really was what kind of kind of made them interested and then so people started checking out the show before I was in the band, and obviously Dan is an amazing front guy and, and mesmerizing. So I think that was the, the legend of, you know, the band was this awesome, formidable thing. And then, you know, come to 87, I I joined, and it was sort of a, a really cohesive look, I think, for, for the whole five of us. So that was definitely the selling point. I think in what I understood was Derek was wanted to make sure I looked the part, <laughs> too, as well as play. Yeah. So there we were. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so whose idea was it to uh, to get Bruce Fairburn and Mike Fraser to work on the record? Like, were you aware of these guys, or were you aware of Little Mountain at all? Oh yeah, I knew. I mean, I'm pretty good with the history of like records and rock, and especially in that region of the world. So I knew Little Mountain forever. Um, all the Loverboy stuff, obviously, and then then anything kind of quirky like you know i think we talked paul hide the payolas or things like that um but yeah so i knew like you know i always read album credits i knew what little mountain was i knew who bob clear mountain was and even even guys like you know bob rock obviously but guys like mike fraser who were like assistants in the studio back in those days mm -hmm. but i knew i knew bruce fairburn because he worked with a i think a portland band black and blue at some point yeah um so, yeah, I so knew who Bruce Fairburn was for sure. He did a Crocus record, too. So <laughs> Yeah, so can you can you tell us about working on the songs with Bruce? Um, did he change much on the songs that ended up on the debut album at all? Uh, he had great ideas, and so what he does with all the bands, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, there's this dilapidated theater, I think it was called the New York Theater, or something like that, in this part of Vancouver up there that was just icky. But he has us all set up in there and just kind of run through these songs and the arrangements, and he works us like, like you know, like any any other band, no matter how big you are and how small you are. 
he just ran you through your paces and we talked through ideas and the band, our dairy network, we already had kind of a sound anyway. So it was just a matter of tightening arrangements, you know, trimming the fat, throwing new ideas in. And that's what he was really brilliant at. Just kind of making us try stuff and rework things on the spot. And it, if it felt good, it probably meant it was probably right for recording. Yeah. Um, and then he's also very keen in the studio about, you know, time management and getting performances too. So that was really for, for, for me, that was fun to watch. Um, just watch him work, sit in the corner of the room and watch him, you know, just put us through our, our tracking and things like that. So it was really a great experience. Yeah. Now we've had a couple of guys on that have worked with him and they said that he'd record the band live off the floor. Did he do that with you guys at all? Yeah. Yeah. We did, uh, probably we'd try like three or four different takes and then out of that we'd get a great great rhythm track drum bass track and we'd work around that and see if there was anything we could salvage because a lot of it for us was we had to be five of us in the room live because that's kind of our thing and um that got the best results in dancing and along and a lot of dance vocals ended up being on the records too just you know just because the spirit of it uh, and then some even, you know, a lot of bands would replace everything. I think we tried to keep as much as we could, but, you know, just so you can really fine-tune a performance, we'd overdub some other stuff and and, and even get better better stuff. There was always a feel thing with us about us playing together, especially the funky stuff, and that we tried to preserve as much of that as possible as a five-piece. Yeah, now, is there any influence that you brought to the songs on the debut that, like, is completely separate to any of the other four, that, like, you were the, really the only guy that was a fan of this form of music and you brought it into the songs? Well, for me, it was like, uh, they already had this kind of, um, it felt like an, a Prince vibe to it, and then it started, you know, during the, the course of my initial beginnings of the band, being in the band and kind of learning the set. And then as we got to the studio, there's about a four month period where I felt it was very princey, but it's also starting to get really heavy in the guitar world, which I personally was a big fan of. I'm more of a guitar guy than a keyboard guy. You know, I'm a keyboard guy. So the interesting part for a keyboard guy is how you work around all those big guitars, especially back in those days when everything was guitar. Um, so, with me, I tried to come up with lots of different sounds and palettes of sounds that would kind of work well with guitars, but cut through all the, you know, just the overtones of guitars. That's a little bit of a challenge. So, you know, me and Dan and a guy named John Webster up there, who was like a, oh, God for hire, like keyboard guy, arranger, programmer. He just come up with all sorts of gear and for us to play with too and sounds. And so we'd have a library of things to work with while we're in the studio, for yeah. sure. Yeah, so c can you tell me, I just want to talk to you about one or two of the tracks on the album. Can you tell me about writing the song um, Resurrect? Fantastic song. I think what I remember is we kind of had the, the song, you know, the not the, the grandiose intro that appears on the record, but we had a version of it that we brought into the studio with a kind of large kind of prog rock intro. Hmm. Um, and as we got into the studio, we kind of started reworking it a little bit. And then I think it was Brian who, our guitar player who had an emulator too, keyboard, just really cool little thing. And he came up with a really beautiful arpeggiated kind of sequence that intros that piece. 
And then it was Dan and I think Mike Frazier kind of came up with the idea of just building this mysterious kind of intro vocal, um, which was really, you know, for us, it was just kind of like when we, it was finally put together, like that is a fun song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, it's that's very powerful. Yeah, it's a fantastic song. I'm, um, I'm, I, didn't you open the show? Your some of your shows with that later on. We did, you know. Uh, I that was you know my very first song I ever played with the band was Resurrect in its original kind of demo-y early stages form. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a big intro song for us locally. And then, then we you know recorded it and turned it into something else. Um, I think we did open a lot of shows with that because it always felt like that was the the right song to open with. It yeah. just felt like it got things off to a good start. Yeah, it's definitely one of these songs that it builds, and when it actually kicks in, it really gets going. You know, it's a, it's a great opener, yeah. I think. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, so the other song, of course, I want to talk about is uh, Baby Don't Fade. Doesn't that have Bruce playing trumpet on it? That is. So it's a lot of that thing, it just feels like it was just spur of the moment ideas um, especially Dan's vocal on that. It just, you know, a lot of that was just um, from the basic track, just recording live, five of us. The spirit, that's the spirit of Dan Reed in that song, just kind of just rapping, jamming, scatting. But Bruce playing trumpet, it was uh, like, I think it was his crazy afterthought. Um, but it came out really nicely. You know, it was just kind of quirky, but it was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but ironically, Dan Reed plays trumpet too. So I think a couple of shows he pulled out the old trumpet and local shows, Portland shows, and he uh, did a, a reasonable facsimile of the trumpet solo. <laughs> okay. So so w- w- when you toured that record, uh, who did you actually uh-huh. go? Who did you go out with? You remember? Um, we did a lot of shows, like you know, a lot of those industry shows. Um, festivals and stuff. So we played with like the likes of like Richard Marks or like another Canadian band called Glass Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had Bill Graham as our manager. So we did a lot of shows with Eddie Money. Um, and those were a lot of fun because Eddie Money was really hot then too. So you got to see a guy in his second, second comeback, I guess it would be. But we went out um, a good part of that summer with with UB40, which was kind of a quirky lineup. Yeah. You know, our band is in UB40. But I think there was a great, um, I think a great idea for us in the middle of that tour, because we were kind of an energetic kind of rocking band. But the UB40 crowd, they were kind of chill and, you know, probably all, you know, reefered out or something. But <laughs> they they weren't necessarily quite digging us. You could tell they wanted to like us, but I think they were a little perplexed a little bit, like, why was this band opening for uh, our night of reggae? So we started kind of changing our, not our music, not the way we played it, but maybe it was the approach a little bit. Instead of being crazy people all over the stage, we we thought maybe if we just kind of stood there and played with power, that would translate as well without the antics. Yeah. And I think it developed the band in another way in the performance level. That was uh, interesting. That was a great transition. So, you know, we, so we realized we could do both kind of ways, like stand there and be a powerful presence and get the songs and articulate them. Uh, and then, you know, other shows we go crazy and do our thing. Yeah. Now, of course, <laughs> You used Niall Rogers on the Slam record. Was he picked by default? Like, did you want to work with Bruce again and he just wasn't available? I think Bruce wasn't available, but um, Dan went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner at the Astoria 
uh, I mean, at the Wabasser store in New York in 89, early 89, we had switched management companies to Q Prime, the great mighty Q Prime. Mm-hmm. And um, they they uh, they knew Dan was going to see Nile. Nile had maybe expressed interest in some form they knew. So they hung out together at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner. Nile and Dan got on really nicely. And I think that was kind of how it worked out. That was just Niall was our guy. He loved the band, and um, he loved he loved the first record because you know I think it was for him a funky guy and you know chic and you know he loved the idea that we were kind of like that, but we rocked. Um, so he really wanted to work with us. So we uh, we got on really well. It was really fun working with him. And guys like that have great stories too. So that was that was kind of you learn from those kind of things too when you talks about groove and you know with Bernard Edwards and Tony Thompson you kind of understand what that what that is to play with guys like that and then you kind of assimilate some of that vibe a little bit yeah it's, it was it was kind of just neat, neat to hear that stuff from like the horse's mouth yeah no of course that that's the album that I found you guys because mm-hmm. like I was 17 18 years old I'm buying Kerrang magazine and of course Kerrang started to really cover you guys pretty yeah. extensively and I remember the Slam album got I think 4Ks out of 5 and I picked it up now I'll be honest the first time I heard it I was like mm-hmm. it's not heavy enough because I was into Iron Maiden and Metallica mm-hmm. and Megadeth and I just listened to it again and then again I was like oh actually this is growing on me and then I listened to it again and then I really got it then um, oh cool yeah I thought the Slam record I think a little it's probably a little bit more experimental than the first record it's got more tracks on it um yeah uh, stronger than steel i think is the standout track on that like seven minutes oh. long fantastic <laughs> oh. song thank you that was fun to uh that was fun to work out because we didn't i don't think we thought it would be that big you know ending that we put on on it but we started playing that live and in the studio as we're you know recording it and then we just thought god it just feels good brian's just playing and we're just kind of going for it and building it like a movie soundtrack and that was kind of the idea um and it would be an epic song for a statement of somebody's how they felt about somebody yeah now the other thing that i noticed then that and i've always said to myself, you know, if I ever get a chance to talk to anyone in the band to tell me how they actually felt about about this. Um, you were kind of being marketed as a cross between Prince and Bon Jovi. And I kind of thought yeah. that that, you know, kind of stereotyped you guys a little bit because you were a lot more than that. You know, it was kind of, you know, and I think at the time I remember, I I, I don't think that's right, but I, the, the magazines kept going along with that, and uh, how how did you feel? How did you and the band feel about things like that? I, I think uh, there was a part of it that was well, okay, that's cool. We think those guys are pretty awesome. Um, but that, there's some point where after the first record, even during the first record, as you know, I'm new to the band. I'm new to Dan. I knew Dan because he's like a local Portland guy forever, and I know Dan, and I know what he's the band was trying to do in the clubs, and it was really cool and and. Ex- experimental before the record deal when i got in the band and we're working on music together for the first record i realized how great a writer dan reed is um concepts and and just kind of metaphors and just you know just a different way of saying stuff um he has this gift that's just uncanny 
the second record, he developed that even more than the third record. You know, he, he really goes and tries some for some really worldly ideas. Um, so I think that's where it kind of rubs us a little bit crazy that we're, we're a little bit more than, than not that either of those bands are less, but we have something different to offer, um, musically and lyrically, especially, um, and, and ideas and concepts. So, but I think the test of time, um, our fans always knew that. And, and I think people come around, like, I think what is interesting now, our fans who are 40 something, maybe 50 something, their kids are in their twenties, love our stuff. Mm. They love the idea of what we're thematically writing about. Um, and then musically they're, they're into, it feels like, you know, a rock record or kind of funky or, but mostly it's energy. Um, and they get that. So and then they see us live and, and that feels the deal for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, but yeah, so, you know, honored to be associated with, with people like that, our, our contemporaries. It's really kind of interesting to think about like that, but we always thought, well, we'll we uh, had a different approach and it's, you know, we'll try some things that are not, are off the beaten path a little bit lyrically. Yeah. Musically. Yeah. No, this, that, that record had a lot of singles on it. I think Tiger in a Dress was a single, Rainbow Child, um, Come Back Baby was a single. Um, yeah. W- w- was that album considered a success by the record company? I think so. I, it certainly, you know, in America, uh, they were having some, God, was it, I think we had, did not have a president of the label over there at Mercury for like a year and a half or more. So there's no direction. But in the UK and Europe, they knew exactly what to do with that record. Hmm. And they were they were just running with it. It was like the best thing ever. Yeah. To see somebody got it, to see all the territories around Europe, they understood what the band was and, and what those songs meant and how they could market it. It was really brilliant to watch. You, you know, not that our American counterparts didn't love us. They just didn't have any leadership. We have the biggest fans at the American label who are frustrated beyond yeah. <laughs> all just that they couldn't get us to be a big hit in America. I said, it's okay. We, we did well in America. And, you know, it is what it is. You get a piece of the dream, and that's pretty outstanding for anybody. You yeah. Know? Now, was it the Slam record that you toured with uh, Bon Jovi on? Yeah, that was that was really fun, because um, Dan, Dan had run into John several times in a promotional way. Dan's always going out doing promotion, and he'd always run into Bon Jovi guys. And and so he'd hang out. Obviously, we have a Derek Shulman connection, a Bruce Fairburn connection, yeah. and, a, and a Mercury Records connection. So we're all in the same family. Um, I think there was one one point where Dan was hanging out. I think there's this live Bon Jovi video from New Jersey that Dan Reed just hanging out in the dressing room. But he went and just kind of he and John, they got on pretty pretty well. A little competitive. Both of them are very, you know, they're hardworking guys. But I think at some point, John knew that we were maybe beneficial to the second go around that they did in New Jersey in Europe and the UK. So we got on. Yeah. <laughs> nice. With a, with a little push from Q Prime, but also Doc Mickey. I think he was a great fan of our band too, as well. So it was all, it was all kind of, you know, organic in a way. Yeah. So, so of course, the next record, The Heat, you went back with yeah. Bruce, Bruce and Mike again. Um, yeah. Did you try and get Niall this time to do it again, or did you just say, look, we, we just want to work with Bruce again if he's available? I think we had an idea that 
we really loved doing that first record with Bruce. It was like having your first girlfriend or something like that. Yeah. It was just a, a real magical time, very comfortable up there. Um, that is a great studio, Little Mountain. Um, so we loved the idea of going back there and just kind of doing it again and hopefully making an album that would be a hit that I think Bruce wanted that for us. All of us wanted that. But I think Bruce was really um, perplexed that our album wasn't a hit because he had such a nice run and we maybe spoiled it. But <laughs> um, he believed in our album. He loved our first album. And I think he, he wanted the, another shot at, at us and, and getting us to where he thought we should be. I think that was probably really as simple as it was. But we had also grown as musicians and and writers and Dan Reed as a lyricist. Oh my gosh. Um, so that was, we all went in just kind of with m even more ideas. I think we wrote probably about close to 60 songs or something for the heat. Wow. And it was just, we did not know we were going to go do a Rolling Stone tour. So we were just writing and writing and writing. Um, so that's how <laughs> we had a lot to pick from. And then as we did, we went into the little New York theater and rehearsed our asses off and then uh, came out with pretty good arrangements for about 14 songs, I think, 15 yeah. songs. I think we may have recorded 15. So did Bruce work on the songs the same way with you guys on The Heat that he did the first album when you, when you were working them up? Or was there yeah. any, any change at all in his approach to, to writing the songs with you guys? The only change that we did a little bit was uh, we didn't use as much technology. So in the first album, there's a lot of you know keyboard-based, sequencer-based, you know yeah. things like that um, that kind of bubbles underneath there. So Melvin's doing his other thing and on bass and really enhancing it. So we wanted to be able to go in there and play most of the songs with as little uh, machines as possible, and and then add machines later to kind of enhance what was we thought was pretty full already. So we went in and played everything down, almost five guys live, um, for the most part. Yeah. Um, and Dan actually playing a little bit more guitar. Um, he was playing more, uh, I think it was like a 12 string. Like he was just playing more open chords and it was really a fuller sound along with electric guitar. It wasn't like, you know, Ario Speedwagon or something, but it was, it was really a neat sound that we're kind of coming up with that was kind of funky, acoustic-y and rocky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we did, that was our difference that because we're playing it down five guys live, we could range a little bit easier on the spot um, in, in rehearsal. And, and so when we got in the studio, we pretty much locked in to just go. And we had our arrangements. We just went and uh, had some pretty, pretty cool performances on those first, first few takes. Yeah, um, and then you know, obviously, the third third record in, we're just a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, really comfortable. You know, nothing was weird or scary. Do you remember any other bands being in there for the first album, or, or, or doing the Heat? Like, were there any other bands in there at the time that like you, you were aware of? Like, was Aerosmith in there, or uh, Motley Crue, or any of these guys in there? Oh, the first the first time we were in there, it was like uh, Kingdom Come was in the other room with Bob. Yeah. Yeah, they're in the uh, Studio B, and it was just kind of cool. I kind of knew Lenny from L.A. Uh, down there, so he had one of his band Wolf or something. I don't forget mm -hmm. what he was called. Um, but yeah, so I knew him, and it was kind of cool to see those guys because I knew they were gonna—they're already signed up to do Monsters Rock in America. 
So it was kind of fun. You know, you kind of listen through the door and then, you know, you're just like, hey, those guys sound like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, well, we, we, uh, Blake, we had James Kotak on. He was one of the first musicians we talked to. So we talked all about that Kingdom Come record. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. I love that record. I mean, for what it was, it was like, I was like, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it is really good. And it got hammered in the press. I know, but it's like I love pushing hard. There's a bunch of those songs I just love. Yeah, yeah. You know, they sound they sound of an era, and but they kind of remind me of another era. You know, it's yeah. all those things. Um, but also the second the the Heat record, I think it was uh, we came up to do some re re uh, just uh, fixes, and um, it was ACDC in there doing Razor's Edge. Oh yeah. So I like, oh. <laughs> yeah, they sold a few copies too. <laughs> So I just remember I was just sitting there with Brian in the you know in just the green room just yakking with him. No, actually I was listening to him yak. Yeah. Um, and I'm you know he's got that accent. Oh, the and new, like, he's got the Newcastle accent. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm listening <laughs> to him because I I'm like I want to I want to hang with this guy because freaking Brian Johnson man. And I can't understand a word. I mean, I understand the word. And I, get, and I get it. I get, you know, you kind of like, there's a part of, you assimilate this whole thing. It's like, oh, I know what he's saying. Yeah, but it was, he was such a cool guy. And I've run into him, you know, our band and different, uh, I've actually run into him different social circumstances in the last 20 years. It was really cool to meet him then. Yeah. And then I remember uh, listening to him through the door doing vocal takes. I think it was, uh, I think it was Thunderstruck, but he was okay. doing all the ad libs. Yeah. You know, so, and, you know, I couldn't hear a track. I just would hear this guy screaming in the room, which was <laughs> really, really fun to hear. It's like, I, there's meaning behind all those screaming things. I'm going to hear the finished thing someday, and it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, well, I was there kind of moment. If you're, I think if you are to recommend to anybody a stripped-down rock and roll band with no frills, I think ACDC are the number one band. Oh, it was so fun. That uh, was great. <laughs> yeah, so, what, what, then, yeah. So one of the things, of course, that happened around that time, and I remember that you look back on it now and you laugh, but there was such a big deal made about it was Dan shaved his head. Yeah. Yeah, and the record company, I believe, did not like that at all. <laughs> well, it was like uh, he had talked about it. He had actually, during the slam sessions in New York with Nile Rogers, we, I think we spent like an hour in the in the lobby and and with all the staff and and Dan in a cape with the with the uh, uh, stylist there ready to shave his head, um, we all sat there and had a debate about should he shave his hair or not shave his hair. It would be a great idea to shave it now because then when the slammer came out, it would be just this new look. Hmm. And and so there's about twenty of us in the lobby debating <laughs> now, Nile <laughs> included. It was just, it was kind of bizarre, but it, you really got a good sense of pros and cons. And I think maybe for that particular moment, Dan needed to hear that a little bit. Yeah. Um, as as maybe Niall is more of an industry guy too, he would explain there are people, you know, working their asses off in the band, the label spending millions of dollars on promo and whatever it is that you you maybe not the best time <laughs> yeah. to do it at the start of a new record. You know, they have, they've already made plans for this, this release and, and potential tours, two primes lined up. I know that those guys always thought a year ahead. So <laughs> yeah, now, now you would have done start at 1990, of course, before that. And I, I believe on the yeah. cover of that, he'd already shaved his head. So at least yes, the fans, yeah. the fans had a, knew that it happened. Well, we had finished the Bon Jovi tour, and then, you know, Dan, you know, he, 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 
I think it was uh, probably because we'd probably never gotten so much press as during that tour and Dan doing interview after interview, phone and radio stuff all the time, hmm. asking about, you know, probably talking about, yeah, you guys rocks, you know, you're just great. And, you know, all the girls up here are so sexy. And, you know, Dan is probably in there kind of wanting to talk about the new record, the slime record, because we, we kind of had a little bit more to say. So I think there was endless frustration on his part that he really couldn't tell the story about the record. And I think that was maybe eventually the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to shave my head and we'll talk about stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I I do remember the Heat record. Like when it came out, it was definitely a more political slant on the lyrics, even the artwork. Uh, you had the Gulf War, I think, was going on at the time, and you had a a couple of paragraphs yeah. on, the, on the sleeves about that. Um, the record company were they on board with all of that? Because surely they're trying to market you guys one way, and here you come now with a record that's like a little bit more left field than than uh, than the other stuff and. A lot of the music at the time, I know it was released in 91, but it was still like, let's go out and party and have a good time and give me a hug and all that. And then Dan comes out with with all these tracks, like, you know, political slants on the lyrics and everything. So how did did the record company take all that stuff? I think they they actually liked it. There was a part of them that knew times were changing. Yeah. And perhaps we were on the forefront of the change as a still rock band, but maybe we didn't quite make it as the big hair band as some of the other bands did. So maybe we could be the breath of fresh air, but also have a little bit of history with people. Um, and so I know it felt like they were putting their best foot forward for us to get us out there and get us on TV in America. And we did a lot of stuff in America that we didn't do on the first record. Yeah. So I, I know they were trying. Um, I think it was still a, a label without a president, so it was still a little tricky. And then we got a president who was more, I think, in R and B world. So you know, his champion was maybe Vanessa Williams or something like that. So <laughs> yeah. it was it was still hard for for our band to kind of get through on the label. But we did, and we did, you know, uh, some numbers in the states. But again, we did more in the UK and in Europe. Um, so that's really, you have a home somewhere. Um, I'm happy if it was Europe and the UK. <laughs> yeah, the, the UK seemed to really get you guys. Um, like another band around around that time that I think should have been massive and weren't, like King's X. The UK, oh, do, you, do you, like we've talked to uh, Ty Tabor and Jerry Gaskell and I've mentioned it to both of them that, you know, the UK got you guys early on, very early on, and they've never let go of you guys. And mm-hmm. I think with Dan Reed Network, I think it's the same thing that you guys played a lot of shows in Europe and the, the audience over there really seemed to get you guys very, very early on in the game. I think uh, there's part of it that feels, um, because we rock, like, you know, we can rock as hard as anybody, but we also were funky. And yeah. King Sex has a little bit of groove to them too. And they're very progressive. Um, I think that it feels like that's kind of American. You know, maybe a little bit were like, you know, American bands were accessible to a lot of people. Um, the funk thing, I, I think I feel that is more of an American thing for maybe us, Prince, you know, Mike Jackson. So those artists have an outstanding history in the UK and, and Europe of yeah. fans. Whereas I know that, you know, Michael Jackson, Prince, you know, sometimes in the States, 
kind of whole hum about these guys. And I'm like, you know, that's these are amazing artists, our <laughs> our people, you know. And but I think they're better appreciated by Europeans and and people in the UK or the world, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, Blake, and, was there one thing that led to the the band breaking up, or was it just a, a multitude of different things? Well, I think Dan, you know, he's always interested in lots of stuff. During our our time together as a band, we talked about doing lots of projects, maybe even movies, soundtracks, and as a band, you know, you just thought, God, we'll just be a band that can do a lot of things. Yeah. Um, he started getting into acting, which was, um, you know, I think a, a, a great way to, for him to express himself, and he's quite a good actor. Um, so that was kind of something he really wanted to take time and do. So there was less time for the band. Uh, a couple of us started had become fathers, me and Dan, our driver. So all these things kind of coincided with maybe it's time for a life change. And it wasn't so much that we were going to give up anything. It was just like, let's take a break. I think we had a meeting in October of 93 in Dan's office, and let's just take a little hiatus and just kind of see where where things go. And we just never <laughs> got back together for <laughs> almost 20 years. We were friendly. Yeah. You know, we, you know, I don't think there was any time all five of us got together, but three of us or four of us would get together um, socially, at, you know, birthdays or just and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it was just never, never about music. It was just kind of, hey, checking in, seeing how everyone's doing. And that was fine. I think, you know, as long as we all had that, I think we recognize that what we had uh, in the 80s and through 91 to 3, a lot of bands don't get that. A lot of people don't get that. Uh, musicians, you know, you don't get to experience what we we had and the people we got to hang around with. So forever appreciative and, and, and blessed about those experiences. Yeah. Um, just fantastic thing for, you know, we're a little band from Portland. We're not from New York or L.A., any big city. Things don't happen like that. <laughs> the little bands from Portland, um, let alone to have a five, six, seven year career <laughs> yeah. with a label. That yeah. was kind of un- unheard of. So we appreciate it. And, you know, here we are in 2015 looking to go out again in October, which is nutty to me. It's like, I can't believe we're going to do this again. <laughs> and when when did the talks seriously start and getting the five of you back together to play shows? Well, I think there was a, a moment in 2012 where um, there was a New Year's Eve event that was happening, and and one of the organizers wanted to put the band back together. So, so I said, well, you know, probably not going to happen, but here's how you get hold of it, buddy. And so he talked to Dan, he talked to Brian, and and I said, what they say? Who said no first? <laughs> and he said, I said, no one said no. And I said. Oh, I think we're probably doing it. So actually, the, maybe the hardest guy to get on board was Dan Craig because he's got a really thriving video production company here in Portland, and he hasn't played drums in like ten plus years. Wow. <laughs> so I said, "Well, dude, it's like March, so you have about eight months to really buckle down and <laughs> and, and get it together." So, but he he it was just like riding a bike for him. He trained diligently every. Every day until New Year's Eve, it was he was like amazing and still is amazing. Practices like it was nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. Yeah, so <laughs> right now, <laughs> so obviously it had to be the five of you guys, or you weren't going to do it at all. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we we realized when the word got out, we we're back together for one night only. It was only one night. It was only going to be one night. 
Um, but everyone, promoters throughout the UK and Europe are calling. And I think Dan in the back of his mind was kind of, eh, I don't know, you know, it would be a, quite an undertaking to get all of us together again. Um, but I think we had such a great time hanging out with each other. The better part even was just hanging out at rehearsal and just hanging out and checking in with each other. But, you know, I have to say, like, we're first time we played a song together at rehearsal, it was like we had two weeks off and here we are again yeah. doing it. And that was kind of, okay, well, that's that's like kind of unique and magical, and that's maybe what the band is. So we thought it just felt natural, like a natural progression. Took a 20-year thing, break just to do whatever, and then we came back, and it was sort of, that felt pretty organic to us, perhaps. So here we are, but um, <laughs> yeah. looking to make a new record. So. <laughs> oh, you are, make, you are making a new record. <laughs> yeah, after Excellent. the tour, we're buckling down, and we're... we're Gonna get serious and <laughs> nice, <laughs> get, nice. Get to work. <laughs> nice. And do you have a record label, or are you just gonna release it yourselves? Um, Dan Reed has a record label that he puts his stuff out on, so I believe it'll be on that one, um, Zero One Entertainment. Um, and uh, Derek Shulman will be involved in some capacity at KN, mm-hmm. which is comforting. Um, I think for him, you know, Derek's never his love for the band has never left, so. It, you know, he just, yeah, I think he's just chomping at the bit to, to just be with us again. He, he, he's actually been around with us a little bit with Dan as Dan has come back into his solo career. Derek's been with them just kind of as a, you know, advice person if, if needed. But he's, Derek's been around as we've kind of been the network again. It's been, you know, kind of just pleasant to see all the old faces and people from the old label pop up at all the shows. And that's just really fun. It's just everyone, you know, it's good to see everyone just know that everyone 25 years, 26 years after the first album, everyone's doing well yeah. uh, in, in our camp. So that's just, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, well, we had Mike Fraser on. and I asked him all the albums that he'd done. Which band did he think would be massive? And he said, "He said your E guys." He said, the fir- uh, "He said he said the first album, and he's done a lot of records." He said, "The first yeah. album, he said, is amazing, and he couldn't believe it didn't break." <laughs> I know, <laughs> timing, timing is a little bit of everything, you know. And and then I guess the maybe the story I heard, which is this is the irony of the thing that the Death Leopard Hysteria record wasn't doing so well at our label. And everyone was going to marshal the resources to make that record hit, which happened to coincide about the same time our album came out. So, you know, as things being as it was, you know, hey, you know, (laughs) new band, Def Leppard, new band, make Def Leppard, you know. So anyway, (laughs) but then, you know, ironically, the next year we would actually go with the Def Leppard management, you know, to be our managers. So it all kind of worked worked out in some crazy way. Yeah, it, it it is. When I look back on it as a fan, and I think, okay, they had Derek Shulman they had a major label they had this huge product you had Bruce Fairburn Mike Fraser, Little Mountain yeah. they were the team at the time and you, had, you they, were, they were releasing singles and everything and, and you had great songs you had a great front man great band and I'm thinking why, mm. in, the, why in the name of God did you guys not break when <laughs> there's bands that were half as good as ye were selling like three or four million copies and like did, did MTV play ye guys in the States? They did actually. Okay. We, uh, we got a lot of play in Ritual, and then um, Get You got a little bit of play. But for some inexplicable reason, we were always on Headbangers Ball. Um, oh God! But but it's like, all right, well, I guess if he had to be on MTV, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> I watch Headbangers Ball. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
but I just thought that was unique. Uh, but back to like the, the, the legends that we had working with us, it was, it was such a wonderful experience. I think it was around Thanksgiving, uh, you know, America in, in 87, where they're in our room, as we're listening, there's Derek Shulman in the back of the room sitting next to Bill Graham, our manager. And then obviously Bruce had the control board, Mike Frazier and Ken Lomas, all these guys, they just done permanent vacation with Aerosmith and in uh, our little, little band from Portland. And I was like, look in the room, you know, I don't think the band really appreciated who Derek and Bill Graham were. We appreciated them for their, you know, job that yeah. they're doing for us. But I said, dude, you know, these guys, you don't understand. These guys are like legends. <laughs> these guys yeah. come from legends. <laughs> How old were you guys on the first album? Were you like in your early 20s? Yeah, we're all about 23, 4, 5. Okay. Um, and Brian was a little older than us, but, you know, we're all kind of right there. We, you know, as a time of life, as a age of like the other bands out there, like the Leopard guys are all about the same age, Bon Jovi guys all about the same age. So it was kind of, you know, our little community of <laughs> bands <Yeah. laughs> around the world doing it. So yeah. it felt like the right time of life to do that. Yeah. And energy-wise, it felt about the same too. Um, but so it was good to have that. Yeah, so uh, and Blake, this has been an absolute last to talk about to oh. talk to you about the band um you I, you've made you've made my night now saying you're going to do a new <laughs> record um because i'll definitely get it um you, you you're talking like early next year or you haven't even set a date on it yet well we know that we'll probably be be everywhere from may on next year and so we would definitely want to have it done by next spring summer okay um so we have about oh gosh i think we have pieces of probably close to six or seven tracks just kind of floating around between all of us via email and things like that. And we'll all get together pretty soon. And about, a, it's, about it's almost October. Oh my God. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, would you like, well, dig, would you like dig back into all these tracks? Like you said, you recorded like 50 or 60 tracks for the heat. Would you go back that far and maybe take some of them out and polish them off or? You're going to just write new I stuff. Think, I, I think we're probably, you know, a band that believes in just moving ahead and progressing. So um, we'll, we'll have, we have some ideas we're working on, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a ton of new ideas after the five of us get together in October in Manchester on our first date. Soundcheck has yielded some pieces of gems in the past year or so. Uh, yeah. I think that it will be the same when we get back together. Yeah, so one of the bands that I think you're playing with now is the New Waivers. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about that? Like, um, where can they get you on the website, things like that? Oh, New Waivers, N-U Waivers. Um, it's, you know, I've always loved the 80s, and back in, before I was in the Danry Network, I played in, you know, cover bands, and so we'd always play, you know, Cure, Duran Duran, Please, You Too. And there's there's a plethora of bands that play 70s disco in this town in Portland, and I'm like, yeah. I don't like that stuff. I want to play like my music from the 80s. So I put together this band and that's what we play. We play a lot of those kind of stuff and maybe even, you know, crazy pop stuff too. Um, but we're kind of turning into the event band in Portland, which I didn't really think of it that we would be. I just wanted it to be a healthy alternative to 70s disco bands. Um, but we're starting to be this band that's everywhere, which is fun. I mean, it's 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 uh it's fun to play this music. It's I have five people who sing in my band, and um, I'm kind of one of the fun people along with my singer Willow. Um, 
so it's it's just it's really just a fun outlet for me. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of what we're the best of the eighties and more. That's what we are, the new wafers. Yeah. So does does Dan does Dan does the new Dan Reed Network? Do you have a website? Do you have Twitter? Uh, do you want to give all those out? Uh, for the new waivers, we have all that. Uh, we're on Facebook or or in Twitter, and then um, for I don't know if we have an official Dan Reed site. Yes, we do. I'm not sure if what it is. It's Dan Reed underscore Network or something like that. Okay. Um, it's it's. I'm not sure if it's live, but it's it's kind of floating around mm-hmm. <laughs> in the internet, ready <laughs> yeah. to go. Um, but that's going to have like updated everything and and hopefully a, a DRN store where you can buy your merch and all that kind of fun stuff. Okay. Because we don't we don't tour enough to see. You know, you have to find it somewhere. Yeah. True. <laughs> So you get your necklace. Yeah. So Blake, it's been great having you on. Um I'd, lo- you. I'd love to have you on when the new Dan Reed Network album comes out and help you help do anything to help you promote that. Oh, thank you. Let's do it. Yeah. So I have more more stories. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Keep, write them down so you can tell me the next time. <laughs> I remember. I remember uh 30 years of stories, don't worry. <laughs> oh, all right, Blake. Well, you have yourself a good rest good rest of the night and uh, I hope thank I'll talk you. to you again soon. Yes, let's do. Yeah. All right, Blake. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Richie's interview with Blake Sakamoto from Dan Reed Network. And again, well done on that, man. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I, it's great when you get go back and pick these guys' brains a lot. Yeah. Sometimes they might not remember a lot. And yeah. Sometimes you're lucky and he did. Yeah, no, he was really he was really good. Um, and you did a great job on it again. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are probably going to look at the uh, look at this episode and go, who was this guy? Yeah. But, you know, it's a good interview. And for people who listen outside the U.S., they might look at this guy and say, wow. Yeah. The, you know, I love that band. Yeah. People in the U.S. might go, I, I don't really know who the band yeah. is. But this, these guys had everything going from yeah. the label the producers yeah. and everything and yeah. it never happened for them. But again, I mean the, the the crux of it is really that we're we're just kind of digging into to Little Mountain Sound. This is another band that, you know, it it wasn't a Molly Crew, it's not an ACDC, even though he does talk about having ACDC there when they were there and mm-hmm. stuff. But but you know, it's I mean, all the bands that were in there, they're all part of the Little Mountain story and, and just kind of getting the insights and I think even if people don't know the band or they're even if maybe they're not into that style of music as well, it's just there's a story here, yeah, and um, and I think you did a good job getting that out of them, and it's just kind of just one more piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've one left, one left. All right, so uh, that will do it for this week, and uh, once again, uh, good to have you back. Mm, I'm back again. A little, little discussion here, but uh, yeah, awesome. So uh, that will do it for this week on Focus on Metal, and uh, so for uh, for myself and Richie. Have yourselves a great middle week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.